Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 150. 150. I can't, I can't believe we made it to 150. And we we have a special movie that we've been saving. We wanted to save it for a special occasion. I kind of can't believe we we didn't crack and do it on the show earlier. Dan, what's the movie? Citizen Kane. Buckle up, everybody, because this is the 15-minute film fanatics treatment of Citizen Kane with special guest... Nick Davis, grandson of Herman Mankiewicz, who, as you know, co-wrote the screenplay with Orson Welles. Who would have ever thought that we'd get to episode 150 and do Citizen Kane with a descendant of Herman Mankiewicz? It's unbelievable. He had a million great things to say about the film. So please stay tuned and thanks for listening. Here we go. Everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So here we are. This is episode 150, Mike. We made it to 150 episodes of 50-Minute Film Fanatics. That's wild. It is wild, right? Now, not only is it wild, not only have we had 150 episodes, but on this episode, episode number 150, we are joined by Nick Davis. Nick Davis is the author of Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, A Dual Portrait, and we're going to be doing Citizen Kane with Nick Davis. So Nick, thank you for coming by. Thanks for having me, guys. So we've been saving Citizen Kane. We've done it. We've done you know all these other movies, and of course, people have said to us, "What do you do, Citizen Kane?" There's a handful of movies we haven't touched yet because we were just kind of. I guess we had to get our chops down, or we had to, we had to do something. But this is like, nope, we're going to do Citizen Kane with Nick Davis, who is the grandson of Herman Mankiewicz, the co-author, and some would say more of an author than Orson Welles of, of the film. So, in our first segment, we always talk about our overall impressions. We've all seen it a million times, and I want to start by asking Nick this question. I watched it last week for, I don't know what number of time it was in my life, but I watched it with my 21-year-old son, who was not a big film guy, very, very intelligent. And he watched it and it was over. And he said to me, yeah, that was really great. It was, I said, oh, isn't, isn't it great? And he said to me a question. And he wasn't trying to be ironic. He said, okay, why does everyone though say this is the greatest movie ever made? Like, like what, yeah, there's a lot of great movies, right? Why does everyone say that? And I thought of how David Thompson says somewhere that, um, Kane being on the top of all of these lists has probably turned more people off to seeing it than if they just left it alone. So how would you have answered my son? If he looks at you and says, why, why is this the big one? What would you say? That is an impossible question to answer. I think because <laughs> it, it, it broke so many traditions at the time and right. set so many new pathways for filmmakers. Um, I guess that's why, but yeah, I think Thompson's right. Like if it were not generally considered the greatest movie of all time, people would understand, God, this is a great movie. It's so fun and entertaining and it moves so quickly and it's so surprising. I mean, I, I, every time I watch it, I'm like, and I've seen it many, many, many times. Every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, right. I forgot we're going here now. You know, it, it, it's continually surprising and there's just so much great stuff in it. It's just jam packed with with fun movie stuff. You know, Pauline Kael said it was a movie movie. It was a movie you know? movie. Yep. And, and I think she's right. Like it 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 has suffered from that sort of carrière du cinéma, you know, and all those guys who loved it so much. And it's like, yeah, then it then it started to feel like medicine. Well, Orson Welles said 
in an interview, I forget whose show he was on. Oh, it was Dick Cavett. He said that one of the reasons that he wanted to make Citizen Kane or that or something like Greg Toland approached him and said, I want to make a picture with you. And he said, why? And he said, because you've never really done a picture before and you don't know what's impossible. And so I, you know, I, there's so many things that I love it about it just from the sense of its screenplay. Um, Dan and I, we talk all the time about movies that work on paper and movies that don't work on paper, but you can, for, as a screenplay, it's great art. Are there any formal aspects of it though, that, that you really enjoy as a viewer? So I, if we're just going to nerd on it out on it for a minute, you know, what do you really wow. like about it? Well, I, I, I do love the screenplay and I do love the, 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 you know, some of the speeches and, and, you know, a white dress she had on, I mean, you know, that's so good, that speech. And, you know, every five or so years, a screenwriter adapts it and puts it in a movie, you know, and so, you know, you get it in, in decent proposal where Redford kind of does a really lame version of the speech, but, um, you know, I think that uh, it's such a director's film and and Orson Welles was so he didn't know what he didn't know. So he would just be like, well, can't we do this? Can't we shoot from below? And they were like, well, we don't really do that. Well, why not? I mean, if you could. Well, you just have to dig a trench there and shoot up. All right. You know, and and he was used to working nimbly and quickly in radio and the theater. So it wasn't, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't a wildly expensive movie. They were doing a lot of cheapo tricks that, um, you know, like pushing through the skylight uh, in Atlantic City to see Susan Alexander Kane, like those kind of the the stuff they did with miniatures where, you know, yeah, you kind of know, but you don't really know. And you're just sort of like, you're taken away. It's, it's, it's a fantasy. And I feel like, the people behave like real people, but it's also very much a movie. Um, and, and that's a, a fine line to tread, but they really, it, 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 somehow it all, it, it was a magical alchemy and it just came together where you feel like you're learning about actual life and real people and real struggles, but it's really entertaining and it's a movie. Yeah, that's why if people didn't know it was supposed to be the greatest film, you just, well, just watch this movie. So, you know, somebody that didn't know any better would say, hey, that was really good. Have you ever seen this movie, Citizen Kane? Like, it's really entertaining. It's a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, so exactly. One of the things you talk about in your book, Competing with Idiots, is, you know, growing up and, and everyone revered Herman for writing this. But now, now we live at a time where where Mike watched Citizen Kane last night, you can, you can watch anything with a few clicks. And I just took out my DVD and watched it again. You can decide what track you want to listen to. But, you know, you didn't necessarily grow up with that. Like, do you remember when you were younger seeing Citizen Kane for the first time or, or your I, first impressions of it? I, my first impressions were, um, I didn't really, I don't think I watched it all the way through until I was a teenager. And, but I already knew all of it, you know, like I knew the Rosebud thing because actually it was in a Peanuts cartoon. Uh, Lucy <laughs> spoiled it for Lions. And That's right. so I knew, I knew it because you know, I, I happened to watch, read Peanuts, you know, and, um, and what I was struck by when I watched it was, you know, growing up in my family, it was all, this, you know, the screenplay, the screenplay, how much did Herman write? How much did Orson write? You know, her, you know, Herman wrote it all. I'm telling you, you know, and, you know, my grandmother was just, you know, she was dogmatic about the fact that Herman wrote 98 or 99% of it. And, and you watch the movie. And certainly I watched the movie first time when I was 15 or 16, I was like, 
Yeah, but the direction is unbelievable. Like this is a director's movie, right? Sure, yeah. screenplay's fine, but you, you it, and it's I mean it's more than fine. It's brilliant, and the the, the flashback upon flashbacks and all, all of it is is so good and and seamless and feels so natural. Um, but I the first time I watched, it, I was blown away by by Orson Welles, um, and just felt like, well, this is this is his movie. And then I watched it again maybe when I was about 24 and felt like, I see, this is a young man's movie. This really is a young man making a movie. Yeah. Um, and he had all the confidence and, and no doubt and no hesitations about what he was doing. And um, I just loved it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mike and I were texting today that today films are praised as so often praised as edgy and, but they're really not edgy. They're, they're, they're so safe in their edginess because mm -hmm. it's already a prepackaged, but this, but Citizen Kane is edgy for, for a million reasons. Yeah. It, it's dark. I mean, it's, it's, and it's hard. It's unbelievably dark. Um, and I think that there's this, uh, there's a tension, but, but like, who is this man? We're trying to figure out who this man is and is he any good at all? Or is he just a, total you know blowhard jerk um and 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 i do think that that and the, the screenplay is very good at at sort of letting you kind of not be sure yeah all right in part two we always talk about our favorite moments so we'll see you there Okay, welcome back. So in part two, of course, we're always talking about important moments or key scenes or scenes that are indicative of the films of uh, themes of the film as a whole. So Dan, I think, do you want to get us started? Sure. My moment is, you know, a, a great one of the million great movements moments in this film is when Kane writes his Declaration of Principles. Oh, there's something I've got to get into this paper besides pictures and print. I've got to make the New York Enquirer as important to New York as the gas in that light. What are you going to do, Charlie? Declaration of Principles. <laughs> don't smile, Jedediah. Got it all written out. Declaration of Principles. You don't want to make any promises, Mr. Kane. You don't want to keep. These will be kept. I'll provide the people of this city with a daily paper that will tell all the news honestly. I will also provide... That's the second sentence you've started with I. People are going to know who's responsible. Now they're going to get the truth in the Inquirer, quickly and simply and entertainingly, and no special interests are going to be allowed to interfere with that truth. I'll also provide them with a fighting and tireless champion of their rights as citizens and as human beings. Signed, Charles I love that. I love that whole interchange between him and Joseph Cotton when they're kind of looking at each other and Joseph Cotton is like, kind of, I kind of see through you and you're like, who's thinking what it's, it's a great poker game between them. And it reminded me of how that declaration of principle strikes me as every mission statement you see that every corporation has now, or every <laughs> school has, everyone's got their mission statement. Right. And I thought to myself, well, why do we make these kinds of things? And I love how Kane says, it's got to go on the front page. And the guy comes in and says, oh, I have to reset the front page again. He's like, well, then you have to do it. Right. And I think what's great about this film is it's about a guy who has to proclaim it. He wants to proclaim his principles, which is like an odd thing to do, right? There's that old, there's that old uh, adage that says like, um, you might be the only Bible someone reads today. Like you're supposed to, your principles should be seen in the way you live your life, right? But he wants it set in type. And, and I love how the movie, watching it again, it reminded me that this movie is about a guy who, who loves to make these grand gestures towards goodness or towards admirable qualities. 
but to show that he possesses them, but you don't know if it really does. Like you said before, like, like when he finishes the bad review, when Leland starts writing the bad review and Kane's, I'm going to finish it. And he starts typing it. He, like he, he wants to have a giant neon sign over his head that says honest man, <laughs> like, you know, but he's only, you don't know if he's doing it to show that he doesn't care or that he's going to one up Leland that I, I, you know, um, and that, you know, like the way he buys Susan everything. Like, we want. do you want to be nice to people you love? Sure. Do you want to buy people presents? Sure. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to buy you crate after crate of art imported across the Atlantic Ocean and stuff. And I think um, it reminds me, Emerson has a line about somebody. He says, uh, um, the louder he talked of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons. And I think Kane is a great movie. He's a great figure who's constantly making these gestures when uh, that, that, are, that are theatrical and over the top. That's great. Yeah. I mean, there are so many moments. I don't know if I'm, should I be sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Moment? I mean, to me, the uh, the white dress speech is so great because it's there, there's a, a sense in which this guy just wants to indulge his own memory. Well, Mr. Bernstein, we thought maybe if we could find out what he meant by his last words as he was dying. That rosebud, huh? maybe some girl. There were a lot of them back in the early days. It's hardly likely, Mr. Bernstein, that Mr. Kane could have met some girl casually and then 50 years later on his deathbed. Well, remember. you're pretty young, Mr. Mr. Thompson. A fellow will remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry. And as we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in. And on it, there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a white parasol. And I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl. Who else have you been to see? Well, I went down to Atlantic City. You know, well, you people remember different things. And then he just, he just, he, frankly, he's stuck on this girl that he saw on the ferry in 1898. And the white dress she had on, you know, not a not a day goes by. I don't think about that about that girl. But anyway, let's get back to what you came here for. You know, <laughs> what what is this rosebud thing? Uh, and I think that there's so many there's so many themes in that. It's like loss, memory. That's what the whole movie is about. Is in in some ways is like we've lost Kane. We're trying to recapture Kane. And, and we're trying to recapture our memories. And also there's a, a woman at the center and we, we didn't get her and she's gone away. Um, so that, that I think is, is, is a moment that I just, it always gets me uh, yeah. every time. No matter how many times you see it, it always does. Mike, yeah. what's your moment? Uh, well, the scene that always gets me is when he's challenged um, that, the, that the paper's costing him a million dollars a year. Now tell me honestly, my boy, don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise, this inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. Right. And, it, and also as a rich man, it's against his own interests. So it ties into what you were saying, Dan, about how he always wants to proclaim his values. But I, I think that there are certain audacious projects that people get involved in that they do for the sake of their own audacity, but make them feel good because they feel moralistic. 
and or, and I think that that's how young people find principles, right? They they typically they don't think for themselves. They find a slogan that they like, and the slogan makes them feel a certain kind of way, and they think themselves into the slogan. So, in the same way that you said that this is a young man's movie, I think that that's the young man's part of a young man's movie, where he says, you know, I could keep doing this uh, for I guess I suppose I could keep doing this for sixty years, uh, which. Yeah. Yeah, he says I'd have to close this place in sixty years. Right, that's a, it's so it's so be, it's so beautiful because of yeah. course that's Orson Welles also as the director. Be it's an audacious moment in an audacious movie where he plays an audacious character, and it's almost it's it's the center of the film for me in in a way because that's when he seems the most Keynes when he seems to yeah. understand himself and and yeah. kind of the subtext of what he's saying is if this moment lasts forever, then I'll always know who I am, and of course that's that's impossible. Right. Even if it, even if he could do it financially, you can't do it spiritually. The times will move on. This is just a certain place in time. And I feel I think Orson Welles felt that way. I think in that same interview with Dick Cavett, he was asked, is that your greatest film? And he said, no, but my next one is, you yeah. know, he was always trying to recapture the Orson Welles about him. But there's a certain overlap where everything where everything comes together in a way that's inimitable. You can't you can't do it again. So welcome back in part three, we talk about the last scene of the title. So, so Nick, can you tell us about what's your impression of the title of this film and the title that, you know, your grandfather and, and Wells eventually settled on? Well, it's a great title and I love the way it comes on. I mean, it's so, it's just big and bold and silent and, and it's just great. And you don't really know what it means, you know? It's like, what, what does it mean? It's such an odd locution. Um, it's, we don't walk around calling each other citizen, you know, and, and so it's, it's a mysterious title in a way. Uh, but yeah, no, Herman thought, you know, the first draft was, uh, American, you know, and he thought it was going to be called an American and, uh, or just American. And I also love the way Kane self-identifies, you know, I am, have been, and will be one thing an American, you know, he comes back and there's a silent title at one point. Um, but I think that Citizen Kane sort of is, it's sort of bringing him down a peg, but also elevating him because it's written in these, in this huge type that takes over the whole screen. Um, it's a great title. It worked. Mike, what about you? It's just, it, it is ultimately the perfect title because any, t- any two words, like war, any two words, war and peace and any title are always juxtaposed. And so the question is, of course, what, what kind of citizen is he? Um, and or what even is that name? It's a mystery story, um, but it's 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 mysterious. Its way of being mysterious is to give you a ton of information, but no answers, which I yeah. think is is so is so beautiful. Well, it gives you one answer that the movie immediately undermines. I don't think right. any one word can sum up sum up a man's life. And that there's been a tons of written where you know Orson Welles said that was just something we hung the plot on to get going, and, and the famous thing nobody hears him say it. Who you know in the Butler's, I heard him say Rosebud, and who was Rosebud? Like that, even 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 Herman, I think, acknowledged that that was it was a gimmick to give Thompson. Yeah, it's a totally, it's a totally yeah. meaningless gimmick, yeah. but it generates the whole story, right? Um, and and there is this, yeah, I mean, you know, I heard him say, Rose, but again, no, you didn't. I mean, there's like, who could have heard it? He right. whispers it. He's alone in a room. Right. You know? But even if he did, even if they all knew, even if Thompson knew that Rosebud right. was the sled. Okay. Right. How much does that give you? How much is that? Yeah. How much insight does that give you into the Charles Foster Kane? I, right. I don't know, like an inch, two inches. Right. 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 There's just, yeah. there's just certain things that don't come around. Right. It's like, why, why is Hamlet so great? It's because it's, it's, 
formally it's beautiful at the height of a certain kind of art when that art is still cooling it's like right fresh off the press and that's i that's the impression that this film gives is that it's the filmiest film at exactly the right time but it 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 dramatizes a certain thing like he he says um we've all seen the hearst uh quote right and and in the movie he says you supplied the word poems I'll supply the war. When you just read the quote or you know somebody historically said it or something similar, of course, the sense of superiority comes off. But what doesn't come off and that Orson Welles is able to dramatize is how much the person saying it is loving that moment. Yes. Uh, right. And, and yeah. that That's sense the of superiority same, I mean, you know, It's yeah. the same scene. It's that fantastic scene. That is really such a great scene. Wells, when when I first watched that, I was like, "This is the same guy who wound up, you know, to sell no wine before its time." I mean, this is a <laughs> sexy, dynamic, young, good-looking man who's so enjoying it. Like, oh, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems; I'll provide the war, and it, it's all so tossed off. Like, none of this is meaningful at all. Um, and that's what that's you know, getting back to your uh, point about the Declaration of Principles. What I love about it is when Leland says. You know, I have a feeling this is going to be very important someday. And he's like, are you totally pulling my leg or yeah. do you actually think this could be important someday? Right. Which is great because he, like, you're trying to watch the poker game between the two of them. And every time you watch it, I, I every time I watch it, I, I have a different I pick a different winner of who yeah. wins that conversation. Every time yeah. I watch it, I'm like, no, nah, Kane definitely can see right through. Him. And they're like, nah, Leland's got his number. And that's that's why he that's why Kane gets a little skittish. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's neat. So, um, so closing thoughts, Nick, uh, closing thoughts about Citizen Kane or about, about, you know, a lifetime of watching Citizen Kane and the things you still love about it and the things you hope other people love about it. Well, it's interesting because I, what you just said, Mike, about it, it being the filmiest film at the right moment. I do think that, you know, you, it, 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 it did capture that moment. And, and Wells was like, Hey, this is the biggest train set a kid ever had. Like, I want to make a movie. How great, how exciting. And and everybody was oh you know you got to take this more seriously but he 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 did take it seriously he was an artist and he just loved doing it and and I do think when those things happen and in my book I compare it you know, just because I love Moby Dick and I love Sergeant Pepper like to me that's like these right. Titanic but fun like there's no novel that's more fun than Moby Dick mm-hmm. and there's no album that's more like Sergeant Pepper is nothing but fun but it's also a brilliant work of art because it completely captured this new art form and and it's guys just experimenting and like hey, let's make this work um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that your son, uh, Dan liked it as much as he yeah. did, uh, yeah. and, and that new generations will discover it. And, and if we're able to give it to them without it feeling like it's medicine and it's going to be good for them, then, then maybe we have a chance. Nick Davis is the author of Competing with Idiots, a dual portrait of Herman and Joe Mankiewicz. We urge you to read this book and listen to our previous episode where we interview Nick at length about his family. Nick, thank you so much for joining us for our 150th shot. It was a pleasure and an honor to be here, guys. Thanks so much. So nice to meet you. Thank you. 